And good morning. This is Doug Dahlgren. I am from Georgia, and I am an author. Welcome to the show that I call The Prologue. Now stick around for this next hour, because you're going to enjoy this. Just who am I, you might ask. Well, I have eight novels in print, plausible fiction, fun reads, at least I'm told that by my readers. They're also available in Kindle, so I'd love it very much if you'd take a minute and look me up later on Amazon.com. Again, that name is Doug Dahlgren, D-A-H-L-G-R-E-N. Now, a special welcome goes out to our service people stationed around the world and to our first responders here at home. Thanks for listening, and thank you all very much for what you do. Now, once again, this show is called The Prologue. That's just another way of saying an introduction, and that's what we do here. We talk about books, good books, worthy of your time books, and mainly those that you haven't heard about yet, but you should have. Today, one week from the 4th of July weekend, I bring you a book by a true military hero, a wounded patriot who currently spends his days helping other wounded veterans, as he has for over three decades. Our author today is retired U.S. Army Captain William G. Haneke of Virginia. His book is titled Trust Not, and this is your prologue. On November 13, 1968, 26-year-old U.S. Army Captain William G. Haneke suffered massive traumatic injuries while serving in South Vietnam. He had been targeted by a Viet Cong command-detonated mine. It catapulted Haneke's body some 80 feet through the air, draping him across a barbed wire fence. The explosion caused multiple amputations, severed his carotid artery, caused massive head injuries that would require five neurosurgical operations, and inflicted severe shrapnel wounds to over 90% of his body. In the next 36 hours, he would be declared dead five times. But that simply was not to be. His miraculous story of survival, intensive treatment, and successful rehabilitation are chronicled in his book. Upon returning home, he completed a master's degree in both health and business administration and has worked for well over 30 years managing organizations in all sectors of the healthcare field. This true patriot advocate is with us this hour. We're proud to introduce to you Captain William G. Haneke. Captain Haneke, how are you, sir? I'm doing fine, Doug. I wish you a pleasant good morning, and I thank you for the opportunity to uh, uh, talk to you this morning. Well, goodness sakes, it's our honor and privilege to have you here. Now, your book is called Trust Not, and it was published in February of 2011. Why did you wait so long to tell your story? Well, I think uh, my feelings following uh, return from combat and you know working my way through all of the rehabilitation process from uh, my you know severe wounds, uh, I just felt that there were a lot of people you know in my life that could not or would not relate to my story or what I had to say. So, like a good many other combat uh, soldiers or those who have have been in you know stressful situations, I kind of bottled it up for a number of years, and uh, after a period of time, I had four children who repeatedly asked me, Dad, tell us something about, you know, what you went through. We've heard, you know, virtually nothing about your experiences in Vietnam, and we've heard all kinds of 
know, opinions, uh, stories, and whatnot about others who've been over there. So I finally decided to uh, bite the bullet, so to speak, and, uh, you know, dredge all of these details out of the past archives of my mind and try to uh, get it down in um, some sequence or some uh, order so that perhaps they would have something that they could uh, look at and relate to. Well, anything uh, that's worthwhile is worth waiting for, and this certainly was worth waiting for. Uh, the book is titled Trust Not. Please, before we go any further, let's tell our listeners where they can find that so they can be going ahead and getting their order in while they hear more about you. Tell them where they can order Trust Not. Well, it's available in paperback and in Kindle or eBooks uh, through Amazon.com. All right. Do you have a personal website or anything? or? I do not at this point. I'm working on it, but I haven't quite got that up yet. Okay, so we're, we're, we're dealing with Amazon, and again, the name is William G. Haneke. That's H-A-N-E-K-E. So look it up. The book is called Trust Not, and you'll really enjoy it. Now, there's, there's a tremendous background to your story uh, besides just the Vietnam, and this is also in the book. You come from a military family. Would you please tell us about your childhood and your upbringing? Well, my dad was a, a graduate of the West Point class of 1936, and uh, I was born in 1942, uh, which was, of course, during World War II, and uh, so we moved frequently, shall we say. Uh, you know, my dad was a career soldier, and, uh, you know, he was on active duty uh, during World War II, the Korean War, and Vietnam. So uh, he had a very active career, uh, both in the United States and overseas, and uh, as a dutiful family, we moved all over the place, and it turned out to be quite an education and, uh, of course, uh, oriented me very much to uh, want to, uh, you know, follow a career or, or try to receive a career in the, in the military. Now, that class that your father graduated from at West Point, class of 1936, that was a rather distinguished group of folks. Can you uh, remind Yes, it us was, and, and I can tell you it, it had... Uh, General Creighton Abrams, who later became a chief of staff of the Army, and General William C. Westmoreland was also in that class. Uh, General uh, Bruce Palmer, who was another distinguished commander, uh, and uh, even uh, uh, several people who you know had four stars that were in the uh, Air Force as well. So there were a lot of, of people who distinguished themselves in both the Korean War and, I mean, the uh, World War II and the Korean War. Uh, who, who became, uh, you know, top commanders uh, all over the world in the military. Quite a distinguished group to be around, for sure. Now, in your travels that you mentioned, they were extensive. You spent some time with your family in Tokyo and actually rubbed shoulders with the Mitsubishi family. Can you real quick tell us that story? Yes. Uh, when the armistice was signed in World War II, uh, my dad was immediately ordered to, uh, to Japan uh, as a part of the Army of Liberation, so to speak, but the, the purpose was to rebuild uh, the country of Japan and their economy. And my dad was uh, in finance and accounting in the Army, and so he was uh, tasked or assigned to uh, uh, General uh, MacArthur's staff to uh, be in charge of trying very, very hard to rebuild the Japanese economy. And uh, that was an, an interesting experience. Uh, we Initially, when we were assigned a set of quarters, it was in, in uh, downtown in Tokyo and turned out to be quite a large house, or I guess you'd classify it as a mansion, that had all kinds of uh, formal gardens and 
outside houses and whatnot uh, where the servants had formerly lived. And um, we were there for two years, and there was a outbuilding in the back where this family lived. They did not serve as a part of the Army of Occupation, you know, as a servants or in any other capacity, um, but pretty much kept to themselves. And then when we rotated out of there, the morning we left, uh, we're being supposed to go down and catch the boat to come back to the, the States. Uh, this family was set up there and had a very um, formal tea, and, and they were in their you know finest kimonos and whatnot. And as it turned out, they the tea was to thank us for not devastating their house, not looting it. You know, I don't know what they thought we might be. Uh, we certainly were not barbarians, and we treated their their house and property you know with greatest respect. And as it turned out, the family uh, identified themselves as one of the Mitsubishi family, who were the uh, the families that were involved with the factories that turned out all of the war machines, the tanks, the planes, the you know the armament uh, that was used you know by the Japanese in in um, World War II. So you really were exposed to some experiences and and different cultures and and class through different cultures, much more so than most of us back here in the states, weren't you? Oh, absolutely. It was quite a quite an interesting experience. And an education, I'm sure. Yes. Speaking of education, you went to high school in Virginia, and then you attended West Point, and you were in the class of 1966, just 30 years after your father had graduated. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, I, uh, my dad was stationed at Fort Monroe in Virginia, right on Hampton Roads. Uh, at the time, I was in high school, and so I graduated from high school in Hampton, Virginia. And uh, a, a large part of our class were military dependents you know, that lived at Fort Monroe or Langley Air Force Base or one of the other many military reservations in the area. And a good many of us uh, went from there uh, to West Point or were accepted at, at the academy and uh, were spread across a couple of different uh, uh, classes. Uh, I had a little problem with mathematics because I had come from a state prior to coming to Virginia where their you know, public education was not in the best of uh, condition. And uh, so I went to a year of prep school before I went up to West Point. And unfortunately, I had a little problem with the upper class and some you know, physical harassment uh, that wouldn't let me study, I guess, when it was time to take the final exams in, in math. And I missed, I failed by one-tenth of a point. So I got to go to summer prep school, uh, get myself all prepared, came back and did very well at West Point thereafter, and, and uh, then finally graduated with the class of 1966. And after graduation, you were assigned to the 9th Infantry at Fort Riley, Kansas. Uh, tell us a little bit about what happened there, please. Okay. Well, that, that was an interesting experience because the 9th Infantry Division had been uh, deactivated at the end of World War II, and uh, they had, you know, their colors were cased, and... Uh, with the buildup in Vietnam, they decided they needed uh, a couple more divisions or a couple more major military units activated and, uh, you know, have the troops assigned and trained and ready to go into combat in Vietnam. So the 9th Infantry was activated uh, shortly before I graduated, and uh, they were um, going through their basic training at the time I joined them in uh, late June of 1966. Uh, probably 75 or 80 percent of the people in that division were all draftees, but they all they all knew they were on orders to go to Vietnam, so that had less trouble motivating them to pay attention, you know, to the instruction in in the basic training and the advanced infantry training after that. 
Now, is this where you were uh, involved with surveillance and intelligence training? Uh, to a certain extent. Uh, I was more in, involved in just basically taking these guys through basic training and, and getting them toughened up, you know, through physical uh, activities and then teaching them all about the Army marksmanship, patrolling, uh, you know, everything, discipline, just getting, getting them, you know, tuned up and as, as a part of the Army. Um, my intelligence training came later on when I was stationed in Germany uh, at a later date and then when I went to Fort Bragg with the Special Warfare School to uh, be prepared to be an advisor in Vietnam. Now, there's a story in the book about a torn ACL, and that affected things uh, real quick. What happened there? Well, that, that happened in Ranger School. Um, while I was at Fort Riley, uh, the, all of us who graduated from West Point, it was mandatory that we go to Airborne School and, and Ranger School. And uh, so we left there in August to go down to uh, Fort, Bra Fort Benning to the Army Ranger School, and uh, I had completed the first of three phases and was um, in the second phase in, in Dahlonega where we were on a patrol and uh, I fell down partway down a hill and got my leg twisted badly and uh, pulled uh, the knee, you know, quite, or twisted the knee quite badly, so I had a torn ACL and, and uh, the uh, meniscus or the cartilage had also been torn out, so I had uh, severe surgery at Martin Army Hospital at Fort Benning and... Uh, at that point in time, uh, they were talking about amputating my leg, and I heard that, and I just, you know, fought tooth and well, nail. That'll be something we need to pick up when we come back. Uh, didn't mean to cut you off there, but we want to come back to this about the leg. Uh, we are on America's Web Radio. My name is Doug Dahlgren, and we're talking this morning with William G. Haneke, author of Trust Not, and we'll be back in just a couple of minutes. Affordable health insurance was the promise of Obamacare. But for many, the government mandate caused more problems than it solved. This is Dr. Elena George from Medicine on Call, and I want to tell you about a truly affordable alternative allowed under Obamacare, Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare bypasses doctor and hospital panels, giving you the freedom to choose, and with a maximum of $500 out-of-pocket per person and 100% coverage up to $1 million per year per occurrence, you can rest assured knowing you and your family are protected. Coverage starts as low as $107 per month and also includes dental, vision, pharmacy, and holistic care. Liberty HealthShare puts you back in charge of your health. Visit them online at libertyoncall.org. Again, for a true affordable alternative to Obamacare, visit libertyoncall.org or call toll-free 1-800-714-6993 today. This is Georgia author Doug Dahlgren. Join me Fridays at 11 a.m. for a new show here on America's Web Radio. We call it the Prologue. I'll be introducing you to other writers you may not have heard of yet. That's Fridays at 11 a.m. here on America's Web Radio. The United States Justice Foundation since 1979 has been dedicated to instructing, informing, and educating the public on legal issues confronting America. That means you and me. When necessary, this nonprofit organization has had to litigate to present the constitutional view. Since 1980, USJF has submitted testimony to the U.S. Senate on all but one U.S. Supreme Court nominee. Learn more about USJF by visiting their website at www.usjf.net. Support this nonprofit as it defends our rights, our liberty, and our Constitution. 
This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. And we are back. My name is Doug Dalver, and you're listening to the prologue. And your prologue this morning is about an amazing book titled Trust Not. We have our author here this morning, retired Army Captain William G. Haneke. Earlier we were talking about uh, before the major injuries you received in Vietnam, we were talking about your training at Fort Riley, Kansas. You were in Ranger School and uh, had an incident with your knee. Tell us a little bit about that. Okay. Well, I badly twisted it and uh, needed uh, surgery to try and correct the the problems with it. Uh, the problem at Martin Army Hospital was that they had uh, some fairly inexperienced orthopedic surgeons who uh, were not overseen by you know, board-certified uh, orthopedists. And the net result was that when they did the surgery, uh, they, I won't say they botched it, but they didn't do the best job and then put a tight cast on there, which it should not have had, and uh, lost all feeling in that leg. And the circulation uh, just about um, stopped because of that. And finally I was able to get the cast taken off by a nursing assistant one night who was empathetic to my situation and you know restored the uh, blood flow back in there and as a result uh, I did not lose the leg but I you know had an awful lot of therapy that I had to undergo to try and uh, get that leg back into some semblance of usefulness Uh, in the meantime the the ligaments on both sides of the knees had been severed and they were only able to reattach the ones on the outside of the knee but not the inside but I was still deemed to be you know able to continue on active duty uh, with the military and say in the infantry, which I was my first choice. A rather close call there before you ever really saw any active duty. But, uh, Absolutely. At any rate, shortly after that, you're sent to Germany, and that's where actually the surveillance and intelligence training started, and you went to work in that field. Uh, tell us a little bit about those experiences. Okay. Well, I was assigned to an infantry unit, a mechanized infantry unit in Germany, and the camp, I was in, in Bamberg, Germany, and our camp was about maybe 20, 20 to 22 kilometers from the East German border. And uh, it was, you know, I asked one of my uh, platoon sergeants, I said, what, what's the uh, difference in the forces on the other side of the border compared to us? He said, well, we're one-third of a division over here, he said, on the other side of the border between the East Germans and the Soviet divisions, there are 70. That's seven zero divisions uh, that are opposing us over there. And I said, well, if the balloon goes up and we start to have uh, combat operations, he said, I said, what are your recommendations? He said, well, I recommend that you look up to heaven, fold your hands, and repeat after me, our Father, who art in heaven, and then <laughs> bend over and kiss your, you know what, goodbye, because our chances of surviving that are slim and mostly none. So that really gave me an appreciation for what we were facing at that point in time. And uh, in this position, um, there were a number of different things that all of us who were platoon leaders or company commanders in this infantry unit had to be prepared to do, and that was to uh, not only be leaders of our men and discipline them and uh, train them, but we also had to be aware of what gathering good intelligence was all about. And uh, uh, in addition to that, we had nuclear weapons that were available uh, to some of us, and uh, which made me very uncomfortable. Uh, I'd never been trained in how to use nuclear weapons, but we were assigned to what they called a Davy Crockett, which was a small yield 
field nuclear weapon, and uh, I had that for about three months and was never so glad as to have a weapon system taken away from the infantry in my entire life because that just had all kinds of potential disaster written on it. But I basically started, you know, dealing with uh, Army intelligence at that point in time. Um, I received a, I got my top secret uh, crypto clearance at that point and was involved in the um, nuclear release system uh, where I would uh, serve um, several times a month on the system that, you know, was uh, 24 to 48 hours uh, old where we would man the, the telephone, you know, notification system. And if we got the word that, the balloon had gone up, and we were, you know, impending uh, disaster because of an attack. Then we would authenticate that uh, information, and then uh, be sure that the, the nuclear weapons were issued to the units they were supposed to go to. So there's a lot of responsibility involved with this as a, as a, you know, young officer. Oh yeah. Well, I was a working man. I was enlisted, but we share that top secret crypto clearance. That, that's about the only thing we share. Fortunately for me, but I I worked in crypto as well back uh, just a few years after you were there. But uh, well, they, they put everybody, they put the family, the friends, everybody you've ever come in contact with through the drill on that one. Exactly. Well, just one additional comment that uh, during the latter part of my tour in Germany, I was assigned to uh, command a border surveillance camp down on the Czechoslovakia and East German border, uh, and I had a 220 mile kilometer or 220 kilometer. Uh, segment of the border that we were responsible for. So we had outposts out there, we had patrols, we had a variety of different things that we operated there, and also an intelligence network that we operated on the East German Czech side of the border. So, you know, I fine-tuned my skills at uh, you know, special operations and, and uh, intelligence gathering at that point. And then the the orders finally arrived, the orders for Vietnam. Look, yeah, that was like... Action... Go ahead. That was my Christmas present of 1967. I came home from uh, the border uh, duty, and within a week, and it was uh, the day, day before Christmas or Christmas Eve, and uh, I was called into my commander's office, and he issues me the orders and said, do you know what that means? And I said, unfortunately, yes. It means I'm uh, going to be leaving here uh, to report you know, to, to Vietnam. And he, he pointed out that since I was uh, you know, going to be an advisor over there, they were going to send me to to some specialized training before I went over there. And that turned out to be, uh, you know, being assigned to the Special Warfare School or, or Special Forces School at Fort Bragg. So how long were you there? Um, I left Germany on the 28th of February, 1968, and uh, got to Fort Bragg the next day and uh, was an, enrolled in that school. And we went... It was kind of a modified course. They needed the military advisors, you know, well-trained military advisors so bad that they had an abbreviated course they put us all in, and they called this the MATA course of the, um, that we went through. But it was, it was taught by the Special Warfare School. Uh, we did a lot of the same things that those who were, you know, wearing the Green Beret did and uh, were similarly trained in a lot of the aspects of it. Plus, we were taught to speak uh, Vietnamese and um you know, learn to use all kinds of weapons. I think we were trained in how to use, operate, and repair um, probably 250 kinds of rifles, pistols, uh, special types of weapons, and um, and that, that that was very helpful. And then plus the uh, all of the cadre that was teaching us had all been advisors multiple times in Southeast Asia, so that really helped because you're talking to a bunch of people that are not just 
good trainers, but they've experienced this and they know, you know, really know what they're talking about. And you, you need to pay close attention and listen to what they're advising you or telling you. For those who might be a little bit younger, might be confused. The Green Berets, as he mentioned, back we're talking 47 years ago, and Green Beret at that point was uh, Special Forces. Uh, today, I believe everyone in the military, in the Army anyway, wears a Green Beret. Is that correct? They wear black berets. They wear black berets. I thought it was green. Oh, no, the, the, the Army, was... the uh, General Shinseki, uh, when he was Chief of Staff of the Army, uh, made everybody wear black berets. The special, Army Special Forces still wear the green berets. Uh, the oh, Army okay. Airborne uh, troops, those in those units, are wear a maroon beret. And those who are in Ranger um, detachments wear a tan beret. Okay, all the better well, to confuse you with. <laughs> well, obviously I was, but I'm glad I brought it up so you could clear the air with that. Uh, yeah, there's the, the Special Forces folks that he was dealing with were uh, very elite troops at that time and uh, equivalent to uh, Delta Force and things of that nature today, just under a different name. Now, you arrive in Saigon then. Let's see if we can count it off right. You arrive in Saigon in July of 1968. What were your initial impressions when you got there? Well, I, I arrived on the 1st of July, and uh, my initial impression, I was the first one off the plane, and when they opened the door of the plane, the heat, humidity, and smell just, you know, like a mule kicked me in the chest. It was I couldn't get my breath. And I'm thinking to myself, my Lord, if I can't get my breath, you know, before I'm down the uh, – the, the gangway of the plane here, how am I going to survive a year in, in this climate? Uh, fortunately, uh, that was something I was able to uh, do fairly quickly. But it's just the heat and the humidity, you know, just really gets you, and that was it. It's, it's a very hot, humid climate all the time. And in the area where I was stationed, uh, we had temperatures that got up over 125 degrees at times, and the humidity generally was around in the high 90s percentile unless it was raining and we, we didn't have much rain where I was because I was in the desert area, which a lot of people didn't realize there was. But um, it was just, you know, just terribly hot. Like like somebody said, you're, you're serving your tour in Hades because of the heat. And they, they weren't <laughs> far wrong with that. Quite a culture shock, to say the least. Uh, uh, well, then, then we went, uh, we were received on, a, on an Army base at uh, Long Bend. And uh, then those of us who were going to be advisors, you know, were sent down to place called Kepler Compound, which was in Saigon, and there we underwent our orientation and filled out all the paperwork, and uh, then um, according to where we were assigned, and which Vietnam was broken down into four core areas, and uh, the south, the two in the south of Saigon were the three and core, three and four core, and then the up north it was two core, and then the, the, the most northern one that uh, joined North Vietnam was I-Corps, or, or one core. And uh, so then they broke us down according to the core groups and sent us to the headquarters in each of those, uh, flew us into the, the headquarters in each of those areas where we were assigned. So uh, I basically got on what they laughingly referred to as the Mac V merry-go-round, and that was we were to go through the main headquarters within our core area for an orientation uh, in all aspects, all aspects of the advisory operations and that took me to Natrang and Pleiku and banned me to it, Fan Rang, Fan Thiet, and, you know, a couple other places up there. And for the better part of a week, you know, to 10 days that we were 
flown around these different places. And the, the one thing I remember negatively about that is that uh, in this part of Vietnam, it was a high incidence of hepatitis. So they, the medics, you know, were more than glad to give you a, a injections of gamma globulin in your rear end. And, uh, you know, it seemed like every place we went, you know, you, you first report into the place, and they take the men into another room and say, drop your trousers, we're going to give you another you know, gamma globulin dose in the rear end. And some of these medics, I will confess, were, were rather sadistic because they liked to do it as slow as they could and, you know, look at the, the bulge of that gelatin, whatever it was, under the skin and slowly massage it in, you know, to cause you max grief and pain. And so we had trouble sitting down for about 10 days when we seemed to get one of these at every place we stopped. Oh, my but, goodness. Uh, well, we're going we're gonna to pick up about your time at Kepler Compound, our early days in Saigon when we come back. Again, my name is Doug Dahlgren. We're listening to the prologue, and this is Captain William G. Haneke telling us about his book, Trust Not. And we're going to be back with more after these few messages. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's D-O-C-S, the number four, patientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. My name is Dr. Jeff Terry from Mobile, Alabama. I love taking care of my patients and not computers. That is why I need your help. On October 1st, the government will mandate that I implement the new ICD-10 coding system, and if not able to do so, then I will be put out of business and my patients will have to find a new physician. Please call and write your congressmen and senators today and tell them no to ICD-10. Tell them physicians need a grace period in order to concentrate on you, the patient, and not the computer. Who is or what is USJF? It is a nonprofit legal organization founded to protect our rights through the U.S. Constitution. Active in educating the public, USJF has also contributed directly and indirectly to legal defense efforts in many celebrated cases involving fundamental conservative principles. Cases of note include the Mount Soledad Cross case, the Arizona Immigration Law case, the Obama eligibility cases, the NDAA illegal detention issue, and many more. Help this nonprofit as they help you. Visit www.usjf.net today. Did you miss the show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on AmericasWebRadio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on AmericasWebRadio.com anytime you like. This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. And good morning again. My name is Doug Dahlgren. You're listening to the prologue. Our book this morning is called Trust Not, and it's written by retired U.S. Army Captain William G. Haneke. Now, in our tale about this book, uh, he's gotten us to the point in 1968 where he has arrived in Saigon. He is at the Kepler compound, and... Captain Hankey, there was a friend of yours, another officer, that gave you an admonition that was rather important. Uh, tell us that story, would you please? Yes. Uh, at Kepler Compound, that is the, the base where all of the um, 
soldiers coming into the country to become military advisors go through there for their basic orientation and issuing of all the weapons and equipment they're going to need when they go out into the field. And likewise, it's also the place where those who have been advisors that are rotating out of the country come back through there, turn in their weapons and equipment, and then get on the, the plane and come back to the States. Uh, and at the time I was there, uh, we were there three days, I guess it was, uh, the second day I noticed a good friend and a West Point classmate who had been in my company for several years uh, coming through there to turn in his equipment. His name was John Berger. And I asked John, I said, John, now that you have a year under your belt as an advisor, what kind of advice can you give me uh, that would help me out? And he just looked at me and said, without hesitating said, trust not a soul. And I said, what do you mean? Does that mean to trust no, not the Vietnamese? He said, I, I mean, don't trust anybody. He said, because you get a lot of advice and you get a lot of opinions from people over here. And he said, most of it's not trustworthy. And I said, whoa, that's a real sobering comment right there. So I, in... And I found that to be true, unfortunately, during my time in dealing with people, with both of the South Vietnamese and the, uh, the Americans. Uh, we dealt with a lot of different uh, folks from the, the military to the State Department to the CIA to, you know, folks in, in special operations and intelligence organizations that wouldn't even identify themselves. So his advice was right on the money, and, and I shortened it for the book to trust not. So, uh, and that, that pretty well held up. You know, throughout my time over there. Obviously, it stuck with you, and it makes a perfect title for your story and, and what exactly happened to you. Uh, there was a particular taxi ride that's worth mentioning here while you were still in Saigon. Uh, care to tell us what happened there? Oh, absolutely. While we were at Kepler and undergoing our training uh, before going out in the field, uh, at night we would, uh, they didn't have much in the way of eating facilities there at Kepler, so we would take a local taxi and, and go down to one of the hotels that was uh, run by the military and get ourselves a good meal and then come back. And one of the things that I regretted was when we, we reported into Kepler Compound, they made us turn all our weapons in, you know, rifles or any kind of knives you know, that we might have or any, anything that would be a weapon, um, which most people did. Um, I was fairly untrust, you know, didn't trust the whole situation as much as they wanted me to, so I had a case. Uh, a military K-bar knife that I strapped to the inside of my leg, you know, part in my boot, and uh, kept it there just as a potential, you know, defensive weapon in case I needed it. And anyway, that night we went uh, by taxi to get a meal, and as we were getting back in the, the cab uh, to come back, we told the taxi driver, you know, in uh, Vietnamese and in, in French, because most of the Vietnamese spoke French. Anybody over five years of age understood French, because they'd been... French had been occupying that country for uh, over 90 years. So anyway, we told them we wanted to go back to Kepler Compound. And um, one of the things I've been endowed with is a pretty good sense of direction. And I noticed that uh, we were headed 180 degrees the wrong way from where we're trying to go. So I told the, the, the taxi driver in French and in Vietnamese to turn around and head to Kepler Compound, and he ignored me. So I got my K-bar out and put it up to his throat and said, you know, if you don't turn us around and take us to Kepler Compound, I'm going to slip you from ear to ear. So he immediately did a U-turn in the middle of the busiest street in Saigon and took us back to Kepler Compound. And uh, as we got out of the cab there quickly, uh, I was trying to retain him so that the, the police that were there, which were Vietnamese, could come over and arrest him. Well, he took off like a bat out of you-know-where. 
And um, later on that evening, we were told by you know, the commander of Kepler that we were very lucky because they had had a, several incidents where soldiers first time in country had been taken by cab, never made it back to Kepler or some of these other compounds and were found, you know, badly tortured out on the uh, outskirts of Saigon and t badly tortured and, and killed. So we were lucky that night, extremely lucky we didn't become statistics. By my count, that's two real close calls you've had so far. One with your leg, uh, where you almost had to lose it before you even got started, and now this one, uh, goodness, somebody was looking out for you. Absolutely. <laughs> now, now, when you get away finally from Saigon, the orders come through, and they, they actually said you were going to go to Doc to, but that's not really where you went. Uh, you ended up in a place called Wada. Now, tell us about that wonderful little berg. Okay. Well, unfortunately, I found out that, you know, they just put a name of a place in Vietnam on paper, and that's to get you out of the United States and into the, the country where they want you. And then when you get over there, then they assess where the greatest need is for you and your talents, and that, that's where they send you. Uh, the little town of Wada, which is where I ended up, was in uh, Bintuan Province, which was in um, southern Tukor. And uh, it was... This particular area had no American units in it, and I was to go in there with my team um, to set up a new advisory uh, team. Well, unfortunately, the guys that we had trained with at, at Fort Bragg to deploy had all been broken up and sent in different directions as replacements. So we were had no units assigned to us to uh, fill out our advisory team, and it was just kind of a piecemeal assignment of folks that they dredged up from some of the units uh, in Vietnam to come over. And, and I, I had suspicions at one time that some of these guys were the, you know, the dregs, the least desirable, you know, in the unit. And they, they took these people and said, okay, yeah, we'll, we'll volunteer them to come over and, and serve. But uh, for the most part, we were able to uh, get them well uh, adjusted and trained and, and working well as members of our advisory team. Uh, but we were assigned to an area that uh, the district chief, who is like a, um, a county administrator uh, here in this country, he was all-powerful. You know, he was commanded of the police department, the uh, military units, if they had any forces there. Most of them were just mainly local militia. Um, but uh, he was all-powerful. He collected the taxes. He, you know, controlled the jails if they had any. He was, you know, could, was the power of life and death over everybody within that district. And, and this uh, was Captain Mann, is that right? Yes, Captain Mann, um, that's correct. And Captain Mann was uh, very corrupt. He, um, His family was very wealthy. He had bought his way into the service and set himself up as a little dictator in this this, this district. And uh, there was strong suspicion that he was aiding smugglers. He was aiding the uh, Viet Cong. He was aiding pirates. We were right on the South China Sea, so we had a lot of... Uh, um, little boats and sampans or whatever you want to call them that used to go up and down the coast. And, and among those were the pirates who, you know, were opportunists. Uh, but we got involved with, you know, every low-life situation you could think of. We had bandits. We had uh, um, tax collectors. We had, uh, you know, the, the pirates, as I said. And we had uh, North Vietnamese, South Vietnamese, and, and uh, Viet Cong all operating in the same area. So uh, it was a lot more that we had to, t to uh, contend with during our tour over there than just simply, you know, battling the Viet Cong and, and uh, very simplistic look at the North 
you know, the, you know, the Americans and the South Vietnamese versus the communists. Security over there wasn't exactly what you would uh, hope for either. In fact, they had uh, you guys put on what they called a movie night, and uh, it turns out that it was well known that the Viet Cong used that as their recreation and relaxation. They would come in and enjoy your movie night. Isn't that right? Well, that's right. I mean, before I got there, they had some semblance of, you know, a um, group of people that were working with the, the village chief or the, the district chief. Uh, the State Department had assigned a team there called the Agency for International Development, and they had a small team that was there, and they, they had the, the three-wheeled vehicles that they rode, rode around. It was an all-purpose vehicle in Vietnam. It was called a Lambretta, and it was on three wheels and, you know, more like a small pickup truck. But these particular vehicles they had had these huge um, speakers on top, and they had a movie projector in the back, and they had a generator to go with it. And in the camp there was a big white building that was there, um, and they showed these movies on the side of the white building. Well, these movies are all in English, so the Vietnamese didn't understand what the English was, but they, they liked uh, some of these that were Westerns and shoot them up, and you know, the more bodies that were uh, in the movie, the happier the, the people watching the movie were. And we found out that they had movie night every night, and uh, but there was no security on the front on the gates of the camp. So whoever wanted to come in and watch the movies at night was allowed to do that. And I noticed the first night um, there were probably a couple thousand people in there watching these movies. And I start looking at some of these people, and they certainly are not, you know, connected with the, the village, or the district chiefs, and they're not connected with the military there. They're just, you know freelancers that are, you know, coming in from the outside. So I made a decision that that next day we were going to put some security on there and lock down the, the gates and check everybody's identity before we let them in the camp at night. And the next night when we had our movie, there were probably a couple thousand people less in attendance, and uh, it wasn't too long either the next night or the night after that when we started getting the probing attacks coming in at night. And uh, it's like one of my sergeants told me, he said, you know why this is happening, don't you, sir? And I said, uh, no. He said, well, you pissed off the Vietnamese or the Viet Cong because you took their movie privileges away. So that was the way we started uh, getting security in the camp. And, of course, along with that comes uh, probably uh, the knowledge to the Viet Cong as to who gave that order. And that, oh, yes. Uh, yeah, that, that's quite a thing to have hanging over your head. Um Real fast, the conditions in your office, they were more like a stable, weren't they? Well, it was worse than that because the, the place that we took over had been occupied by animals for about 15 years prior to our coming there, and that was chickens and pigs and guinea hens and, I don't know, all sorts of, uh, you know, fowl and, and small animals and whatnot that had been in there. And, of course, they're all defecating and the, the buildup of the feces in the place is, is just, you know, several inches to several feet thick in several, you know, in most of the areas around there. And uh, the, the district chief did not like us. He did not want the Americans in that camp in any way, shape, or form. So when we asked him for a place that we could set up, he gave us that. And it caused me and, and uh, my sergeants in, in the advisory team to have to go in there over a period of several days and, uh, you know, with our faces covered and just dig out all this dried excrement and then uh, we had a solution that we called Fisahex. It had a high level of hexachlorophene in it that would kill just about any germ you could think of. And we used, you know, probably a couple hundred gallons of this Fisahex 
scrubbed the place down after we cleaned out all the excrement. And then Heavy we duty cleanup. Heavy duty. Yeah, oh, it was it was miserable. But I tell you what, we showing that there are free enterprisers out there. We we gave the excrement in the buckets to some of the local farmers, and they just enjoyed it because that gave them free fertilizer they could use on their crops. <laughs> All right. Well, we're going to come back to that and more about your days in Woda. Uh, this is Doug Dahlgren. We're on the prologue, and we've got Captain William G. Haneke talking to us about his book, Trust Not. We'll be back after these short messages. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key, and the trained staff at AHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. Did you miss a show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on AmericasWebRadio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on AmericasWebRadio.com anytime you like. Affordable health insurance was the promise of Obamacare, but for many, the government mandate caused more problems than it solved. This is Dr. Elena George from Medicine on Call, and I want to tell you about a truly affordable alternative allowed under Obamacare, Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare bypasses doctor and hospital panels, giving you the freedom to choose, and with a maximum of $500 out-of-pocket per person and 100% coverage up to $1 million per year per occurrence, you can rest assured knowing you and your family are protected. Coverage starts as low as $107 per month and also includes dental, vision, pharmacy, and holistic care. Liberty HealthShare puts you back in charge of your health. Visit them online at libertyoncall.org. Again, for a true affordable alternative to Obamacare, visit libertyoncall.org or call toll-free 1-800-714-6993 today. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. And good morning again. We are here on the prologue. My name is Doug Dahlgren. We're talking to retired Army Captain William G. Haneke. His book is Trust Not. It is a detailed memoir. And, uh, Captain, you had some help in writing this memoir. It was co-written by Jane C. Walker. Real quick, tell us a little bit about her. Well, Jane is a lady I've gone to church with for a long time. She has written uh, five other books, and I uh, called on her experiences as an author to help me organize my thoughts and get them into an understandable fashion so that we could uh, come up with a manuscript and, and approach a, a publisher. Well, you and her together just came up with just a tremendous read. It, it flows, and it's just exciting. The, the true story, true stories are always much better than fiction because you can't make this stuff up. And it's just a very well-written book. Tell our listeners where they can find Trust Not. Uh, it can be found on Amazon.com, both in paperback and the uh, ebook or Kindle. 
Okay. Now, through your days at Woda, which were really, really rather short, you did manage to achieve quite a bit, did you not? Yes. We set up an effective advisory team, got rid of the corrupt uh, district chief and got a very good one in there, uh, set up a great intelligence network, uh, were very uh, effective against the, the enemy. They had, uh, unfortunately, in September of 68, had overrun our camp and killed uh, over 625 of my men, or the Vietnamese, one night. And uh, that was a disastrous occasion. And uh, then it was they sent uh, Cambodians in to uh, staff our, Cambodian mercenaries, I should say, in to staff our troops. And uh, we had a major incident against the Viet Cong in October of 68 and uh, wiped out the better part of a reinforced regiment. And with that, they found out I'm the one that controlled all the airstrikes on them, and uh, then they put a price on my head of $20,000, dead or alive. Then comes the morning of November 13, 1968. Um, I know it's tough for you to recall that, but real quick, uh, tell us the basics about what happened. Well, the basics of what happened, we were trying to get our compound defenses set up. Part of that was putting the drums, the 55-gallon drums of aviation fuel out there buried in the ground at a 45-degree angle that were thickened uh, to the consistency of tapioca pudding. And we'd had some POWs that were in our camp that left a couple of these drums out there, and uh, we needed to get them back. And uh, I had a little argument with my commanding officer about who should do it. I told him the POW should do it, and he said he wanted me to do it. So I was under direct orders to go out and, and get that done right after lunch that day. I went out there, and he came along with me just to make sure I was going to do the job right. Uh, I don't know why he had any doubts, but at any rate, we were out there rolling this drum across the little sand hills, and uh, as I had the, the one drum up uh, about even with my chest and head, and he's doing a very weak job of pushing on my back, there was a massive explosion, and uh, that blew me through the air and I, about 80 feet, and I landed on a barbed wire fence. And at that point in time, um, I uttered the most sincere prayer of my life, and that was, oh, God, help me. And it was shortly after that that um, a voice came to me and told me to turn my head to the left and that God would see me through it. And basically it was uh, uh, my carotid artery had been severed in my neck. I had lost my, my right leg above the knee, had been amputated. I was blinded. I had suffered shrapnel injuries in 90-plus percent of my body. And uh, basically I knew I was dying as I was hanging on that fence. But, uh, you mentioned rate, your, go ahead. You mentioned you mentioned your faith, the little prayer that you told, and absolutely in the days that followed, and all the surgeries that you had to go through, and all the times that you were pronounced dead, your faith played a major role in your recovery, and also helped you uh, to literally help others. You're laying there, people thinking that you're you're a corpse, and yet you managed to help others. Some Vietnamese who couldn't speak English. Uh, and couldn't relay to the doctors what they needed, and you were there and be able to work as a translator. It's it's an amazing story, and we want the folks to, to get this book and read it. Uh, your injuries were rewarded, as you could say, with a number of medals. Real quick, tell us about the medals. Uh, I've got three Bronze Stars medals, uh, one with a V device for Valor. Uh, I've got, got a combat infantry badge. Um, uh, I have... Um, uh, Vietnamese Cross of Gallantry, and I've uh, got an Army achieve, uh, Army Army Commendation Medal, and the plus and of service. 
Purple Heart. Oh yeah, Purple Heart. Yes, that's the one I know I earned <laughs> for sure. That's that's not a John Kerry Purple Heart. No offense. No, 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 no. It's, it's a Don't even thing. mention that man's name in, in accordance with my decorations, please. <laughs> uh, now there's another side to this story too, and it's also detailed uh, up to the date of your of your writing. Uh, your treatment by the VA and the benefit system. Uh, obviously, with your injuries, once you were healed enough to come home, it was obvious you weren't going to be able to serve active duty anymore. But your treatment, real briefly, what happened with the VA and the benefits system? Well, the VA, and, and back in the days when I came through the system in early 69, uh, 1969, uh, it was tough to get a listing of the benefits that you had available to you. So, you, you know, you really had to get to the right people and ask the right questions. But anyway, I was able to get... Um, I was 100% service-connected, disabled, and retired, medically retired. Uh, I was able to get uh, the VA to pay for my um, education. I got a master's degree in hospital administration and healthcare administration, business administration, and, and worked for 30 years uh, in a variety of different uh, healthcare, um, you know, environments, uh, from uh, being assistant administrator for a large um, hospital system here in Richmond um, to running home health agencies, to building and, and running a, a cancer center in Louisville, Kentucky, and a, and a wide variety of other things in between. Now, since uh, those days, uh, you went back to school. Obviously, you received a master's degree in both health care and business administration, and you put those to use right away. In fact, you've been in that industry helping veterans for over 35 years at this point. Um, you know a great deal about the cause of the wounded veterans, I'm sure. We see so many advertisements today on TV. There's one in particular that's very heavily on television saying that they're there to help our wounded warriors. Can you give us any advice on what the best way for folks who are wanting to simply send a check every month or so? Is that the right venue, or how would you suggest that they try to help? Well, I would suggest that if there, there are a variety of different sources where you can check out these organizations, and uh, each state has their uh, consumer affairs office that can tell you how good, bad, or indifferent these, these charities are, uh, what you need to find out is you know, how much of their, the money that you donate goes to covering the administrative or overhead costs versus uh, how much it actually gets into the hands of uh, or the purpose that these charities intended. Um, I, there are some of them that uh, you know, spend a lot of money on stars to do their advertising, and believe me, these people are not working for free. They are paid by that organization. Um, and uh, the uh, it's just a matter of... He heavy overhead is what you're saying. There's a lot Heavy of overhead, overhead, exactly right. And, and so just a, a small percentage is what actually gets to them. Uh, what I'm hearing from you is check locally. There's a lot of organizations locally in each area that aren't nationally advertised. You helped found one about 10 and a half, 11 years ago. Tell us about Families of the Wounded Fund. All right. Families of the Wounded Fund was started at McGuire Veterans Hospital with several of us. I was one of the co-founders. Several of us got together and saw the casualties of the, the wounded uh, soldiers starting to come back through the system, and many had uh, amputations, uh, most of them had severe head injuries and were long-term patients uh, within the hospital. In the meantime, their dependents were there with them uh, and uh, had a lot of expenses incorporated with their stay in the hospital as well as what they were having to pay back home. 
So we put together an organization and finally got it uh, certified as a 501c3 charitable organization by the IRS, which means if you donate to them, you can you know write it off as a tax donation, uh, a tax deductible donation. And uh, we, ten and a half years later, still have the uh, uh, distinction that 100% of what is donated to us goes to these families. We do not take one penny off for salaries or overhead or advertising in any way, shape, or form, and that's something we really pride ourselves on. And we, we've helped over 500 families to this date, and we're still, unfortunately, you know, getting some uh, recently wounded people who are coming through. So the press would have you believe that we no longer have any kind of uh, uh, presence over there in the Middle East and that we don't have people in harm's way, but that's not exactly the truth. Well, folks, there's, there's many ways that we choose to spend our disposable income. Uh, as little of that as seems to be left these days with the economy as it is. But this, this situation, the way that we as a people treat our wounded warriors when they do come home is really a national shame and a national tragedy. Uh, I implore you, uh, find out more about it. Uh, do as the captain has told us to do. Look locally for the resources that are available. Uh, we can't continue to turn our backs on these young people, uh, both men and women who come home severely injured, both mentally and, of course, physically. So we, we implore you to look into that. Again, uh, the book today, Trust Not, is a very gripping, it's a well-written memoir, co-written by Jane C. Walker. And the story itself is just so much more complete than what we can do here in this hour. But we hope that we have... Uh, really giving you a taste for it, and that you'll go out there and look for that. And real quick, trust not, again, Captain, is available where? Amazon.com. All right. Is there anything that we have left out this morning that just needs to be brought up? Real quick. Not that I can think of, Doug. You've done a very good job of guiding me through all of the, the high spots, and I, I appreciate this opportunity to uh, really talk to you about the book and about, you know, Families of the Wounded Fund, and uh, it's been a real pleasure. Well, thank you, sir. It's been an honor, again, like I said, to have you on the program. Folks, the book is Trust Not by William G. Haneke. I hope you'll look for it. Uh, Captain, thank you again so much for being on this morning. It's always a pleasure to speak to you, and I hope I get to do that again soon. Now, audience, uh, thank you so much for listening this morning. I hope that you've enjoyed learning about this great book. Now, reach out and order Trust Not. You need to do that for yourself and for everyone around you. Share it with others. Look for those uh, local agencies, accredited local agencies and groups that are helping our wounded veterans. It's very important that you do so. At any rate, this is Doug Dahlgren. I thank you for listening this morning. I hope you have a great rest of the day, and I'll see you next time. This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you.